Beth Lay gives me a call, and uh, she wants to talk about after-action reviews. And I thought this was an interesting topic, and I kind of struggled with it to begin with because we were not really successful in the Forest Service with after-action reviews. So I thought back on where we were successful with after-action reviews, and it turns out that in aviation, we were really, really, really successful with after-action after reviews. So I had a friend who flew for the Blue Angels. He was the pilot for Fat Albert. And hey, hey, hey. Yeah, exactly, right? And, uh, and uh, his name was Joe Mihalik, and he was a Marine Corps pilot, obviously, because that's the Marines fly Fat Albert. And, um, and he and I talked quite a bit about one of the things that they would say every time they had a they made a mistake in their debriefings, so in their after action reviews, and what they used to say was "Happy to be here and proud to serve." And you probably heard me say that from time to time. I yeah, see, because I think that it, it's a humbling kind of thing, and I do it intentionally because I am happy to be wherever I am, and I'm happy to serve in whatever capacity I'm serving in. And certainly, if you're a Blue Angel, that's something you feel really strongly about. So Beth had me do this whole thing, and I started with the Blue Angels, but now they've changed that, and it's kind of interesting. You, you'd like this because they've changed the language. So now they say, um, do, 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 glad to be here. Instead of happy to be here and proud to serve, they now just say, glad to be here. Kind of an interesting change so in what's language. So what's the benefit of that? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if it was a drift thing, you know, that just happy to be here and proud to serve. Glad to be here almost sounds smug, sort of. In a way, but I know that that's not the way they intend it. Right, but happy to be here is – it goes to what you just said, I satisfaction so. of being where you are. Yeah. Proud to serve is that sort of servant approach to problem solving. It I seems think, like the new, the new way is not as good as the old way. I think you could do a really good um, short piece for LinkedIn because they're not very long pieces. Do a short piece on LinkedIn and show this transition in the Blue Angels language. And it would be really interesting because I think Todd's right on it. I mean, happy to be here and proud to serve has a real deep meaning to yeah. me. And it always, it always has from the time that Joe first told me about it. I thought, wow, that really resonates, deeply resonates with me. And they had a thing on the Blue Angels, a, a History Channel video on them. And you saw them walk into the briefing room and the guy st stood up and he was acknowledging that he made a mistake. And he said, I'm happy to be here and proud to serve. And here's the mistake I made today. These are guys that are flying jets 36 inches apart. Yeah. Right. So hazardous job. Hell yes. Hazardous job. So that's where I started. And then I took it through kind of the problems that we had with the Forest Service. And I ended up with um, some ideas around AARs that emerged out of the Air Force. And, you know, how was the plan? What didn't work? And, and it, then I couched it against margin, intuition and prediction. Because that's kind of kind of what we're thinking about all the time is margin. How much margin do we have in the system? How much intuition do we have in the system? And how much are we able to really truly predict what the system is going to deliver? And then what worked? Margin, intuition, and prediction again. And where were we lucky? And that turned out to be like the most important debriefing question that we had in the Air Force. We'd sit down and go, where were we lucky? And that really kind of said the same kind of thing as happy to be here and proud to serve. Right. Yeah. Which is our humility. When we recognize that luck played a role in the success of our mission, that's humbling. It's truly humbling. And it's one thing that I couldn't get through to the firefighters. I also think it's uh, it's not just humbling. It's also incredibly meaningful data because now you found an error mode that has no safeguard. You found a exactly. you found a, a way for failure to happen where you've got either no perceived notion, um, sort of safety basis prediction is the word you used, 
or you have no controls in place for when it fails, you have recovery. Exactly. exactly. And some, some of our best learning can happen in that lucky space. So repeat those four questions. So how was the plan? What didn't work? Again, against margin, intuition, and prediction. What worked against margin, intuition, and prediction? And where were we lucky? I like those. I think those are really good. And it's simple, right? It's really simple. So anyway, that's what I gave Beth. That was that was one interesting thing that happened this week. But the real revelation, if you want, are you recording? Yeah. I figured we were. Now we're recording. <laughs> I figured you surreptitiously. You always want to record. It's dumb not to record. It's dumb not to record. What if you said something really brilliant? Well, you that, didn't, but what if you did? I know. What are the chances of that? Let's just forget that from happening. <laughs> everybody and welcome to the pre-accident podcast i'm your host todd conklin hello greetings to you you got to hear young ivan and i sitting down and getting ready to record a podcast and he told uh, like a pre-story that's like a story before the story uh, you know a, a warm-up story let's call it that the warm-up story on after action reviews and uh and and well you heard it what am i doing repeating it you were there and I thought, let's keep that on as the introduction as we roll into today's podcast, which is what's happening right now. I'm so glad you're here. What a treat to have you on board. So um, there's so much stuff to talk about. But since uh, this podcast is kind of a, a chatty, is that a good way to say it? Yeah, chat. I think chatty is probably a good way to say that. I'm going to skip ahead throughout all the niceties. Just tell you, it's, uh, you know, it's super good you're here, and I'm glad you're here, and that's fun. Uh, but I want to break into the podcast because today's podcast is really interesting. It involves really looking at and understanding the interfaces around highly reliable sort of new view safety organizations, stability and reliability. Those, those, the big, the big kahunas, the ones we look for and try to manage all the time. So let's listen as Ivan and I sat down on one uh, fabulous Saturday was it afternoon? Yeah, Saturday afternoon, and had this conversation. You get to listen. So here it is. Without any further ado, um, Ivan Papaliti and Todd Conklin on the Pre-Accident Podcast. Glad you're on board. Enjoy. Listen carefully. Here it comes. Ready? I think it's going to start now. Yeah, now. One of the greatest things that happened, though, over the last period of, uh, of two years since my retirement was a, a great opportunity to reflect and um, I didn't realize how great the opportunity was until I was asked to do an article on really what, what was our transformation? What was our cultural transformation? Literally got asked, how did the Forest Service try to create a safety culture? And I struggled with this for quite a while, right? Because I looked at it and I said, well, did we ever really create a safety culture? Do we have a safety culture? And the answer to that question was, yeah, we tried to create one. And in certain places, we have one whether it's recognized by the different subcultures within the organization is a different, different story altogether. So I really struggled with this and I struggled with the construct of it. I struggled with how I was assigned the job of creating a safety culture. Cause I literally was, I mean, my boss came up to me and said, I want you to create a safety culture. And I thought, uh, okay. So I started looking at it and what I found was I couldn't find a unilateral definition for safety in the organization, much less safety culture. So since I couldn't find a unilateral definition for it, it was really hard target to hit. 
So I started backing off, and where I went to first was um, uh, aviation, the aviation community, which I'm from. And I went to the aviation community, and I took a look at what they did with regard to reasons for sub or five subcultures that create a, a safety culture. And so that was a good starting point. I mean, it really wasn't a bad starting point. I mean, reason gives us a half-decent framework to begin with. He says... He says there are four subcultures, informed culture, reporting culture, just culture, learning culture, and flexible culture. And we thought that was a really good place to start. Part of our organization really leaned heavily toward just culture, which makes total sense because our accident investigation process was fundamentally unjust. Yeah. And we were creating second victims. We were blaming the dead for their own death. It was crazy. I mean, just literally crazy. And families were... Up in arms, how can you blame my husband for, for killing himself? Is that what you're really telling me, that my husband killed himself? That's a, a, a horrible message. And then survivor guilt that existed, second victims among the survivors, plus people that lost their careers over things that were mistakes in complex systems didn't make any sense. So just culture seemed like a really good place to start. So we grabbed onto that. We tried to apply some of the basic principles of just culture that emerged in the in the genre. You know, um, justculture.org was one that was grabbed. And what we found was we ran That's into- That's David Marks? David Marks, yeah. yeah. And we ran into a dead end w- with that. And fundamentally why we ran into a dead end is because the algorithm that was produced by justculture.org, David Marks, always ended up coming to some sort of punitive action. It was either through repetition or recurrent failures or or mistakes. It always took us to the same place. And as long as we got to that place of punitive action, we couldn't get anywhere. So just culture wasn't really working for us. Reporting culture was something we really, really wanted. But we recognized that reporting culture was also tied to just culture. Informed culture was tied to reporting culture. Learning culture and was tied to all three of them. And then we had this flexible culture thing that was out there. And we really didn't know what to do with the flexible culture. The way reason defined it was interesting and useful for a starting point, but we recognized that we needed to change the definitions of that after experimenting. I mean, not right away. So we started off with those cultures and we started to try and do something with them. Our, our, uh, our, mo- our, our, our mode of operation was to was three threefold. One was a research center. So we had a, a group, my group, Innovation and Organizational Learning, was really responsible for research. We sent people off to master's degrees and, and even to PhD programs so that we could increase the capacity of that group in terms of real research, genuine research. But we also had an empirical side of it, so practical side, where people were out in the field trying different interventions. And that was really interesting. So we've got the central core of research and application. In fact, our group was called Research Development and Application. That was the, the subtitle of it. But on either flank of that, we, we had a, a situation where we, or a, a, an opportunity where we could start to look at the different components Leadership's component, leadership's contribution was really interesting. They wanted to start, and they did start, organization-wide dialogues. What a brilliant idea. With Dialogus? No, no. This is after Dialogus. Oh, In fact, okay. Dialogus kicked it off. So hats off to Dialogus because they started this diagnostic memo. And the diagnostic memo really held a mirror up to leadership. And I'm not sure that leadership liked what they saw. Yeah, that's probably normal. Yeah. Right? 
pretty normal. And so leadership then was moved to a point of inquiry, which is super, super important. And I, I'll talk about this in just a second. But what leadership out, out of the dialogue, the dialogus work and out of the diagnostic memo, leadership said, we've got to do something that engages the workforce in dialogue. And that's a really important piece. This whole dialogue piece, we wanted 30,000 people across the entire United States to engage in massive dialogues every year around safety. And it was interesting the way we started with that. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. And then on the other side of it, we had the organization response to accidents and incidents. And in that space, what we recognized was our organizational response to accidents and incidents was fundamentally biased. And we had to do something really, really different to make people have faith in the process and also to deliver on learnings from the process. So what we recognized in that space through the research, the research blends over into both of these, but through the research, what we recognized is that there was a big difference between the acquisition of technical knowledge and the acquisition of understanding. And both of those are important learning capacities of the organization. We could get the technical knowledge. We could figure out what to do and what not to do. That's pretty easy. But some of those things reduced into the engine should have turned right instead of turning left at the fire. So are we going to issue a rule that all engines from now on turn left instead of right or right instead of left? That's very (laughs) anti-UPS. It's very anti-UPS. And it's kind of crazy, right? So we recognize that. And so on the on the the mirror side of that, on this on the other side of it, we recognize that this aspect of understanding, that focusing on developing systemic understanding, understanding relationships, understanding communication, understanding the network of influences, that became something that was really important. And that changed the serious accident investigation process into the learning review process and started to bolster some support from the field. The other thing that helped is a facilitated learning analysis. And I'm going to put this right out there. The idea of capturing story, just story with nothing, just the story, is powerful. And the facilitated learning analysis was designed to do that. Now, we had uh, issues with it where, you know, sometimes it was slanted in one direction, slanted in the other direction. That's the bias that's inherent in any kind of process. So we also recognize that processes are biased. And so we had to do something to try and dampen that that bias. And I, I think, honestly, we're still working on it. In the meantime, as we try to look at, as we start to look at what the leadership side of this, this house was doing, we started off with, I think, a pretty interesting uh, methodology, or maybe not methodology, but a pretty interesting set of premises that existed with leadership that since I've become a professor, which I'm doing now, since I've become a professor, I see in a lot of different organizations where leadership starts out in this coercive space and they're trying to coerce the workforce into compliance, which is not unusual. These are usually the places where we see zero tolerance rules and life-saving rules. Golden rules. Yeah. Golden rules. And that coercion may have a place. So bear with me for a minute because I'm going to get to the place where coercion might work. But what we saw in the Forest Service is the first year we had that coercive dialogue with all of our people where leadership was saying, well, you've got to agree with these rules, these basic things you've got to agree with. And the field came back with, no, we really don't agree. I mean, we might nod our heads in the room, but when we leave the room, it's a very different story. But the next year, the next year's dialogue became constructive. 
Because instead of telling, leadership moved to this place where they were actually asking. And they started to ask for feedback. I don't know if they were totally happy with the feedback they got, but they got feedback. The third year was the big turning point. Because in the third year, we went to this communicative space. And in the communicative space, leadership started to really listen. And in that listening, they started to build a shared understanding with what the field was doing. And the dialogues changed. The language changed. Even our language around risk changed. Fundamentally, it was it was brilliant. It strikes me that what you're describing is the journey leadership takes in how they see workers. Yes. In the coercive space, the worker's the problem to be fixed. In the listening space, the worker's the expert to be harnessed or harnessed always kind of has a weird BDS and M <laughs> angle to it a little bit. But but yeah, it's it's that it's that change in the way they see workers that seems really important. Yeah. And so in this two-year period of time where I left the Forest Service as, as a retired person and now look back and I watch the Forest Service from the outside, what I see is yet another phase of leadership. And this phase of leadership I, I think I'm most proud of. We, we tried to say this when we were internal, but you and I talked about this, Todd. You can't be a prophet in your own hometown, right? right? Yeah. And, and what I see in this, this space after I've left is leadership moving to a cooperative place. And in this cooperative place – they're looking for cognitive diversity. They want to bring in not just diversity from an EEO perspective, but cognitive diversity. Bring in different mindset, different opinions, different perspectives. They're thinking about teaming. And most importantly, they're thinking about psychological safety. In a recent uh, thing released from the chief's office, she actually says that the leadership team focused on psychological safety on their call. That's huge. That's a big change. Right? So – Really quite proud of that that piece. I think that, that that's a big turning point in the organization. Re- repeat those four phases. I think those four phases are pretty meaningful. Coercive, constructive, communicative, and cooperative. Don't and you I, think that's about a million times better than reason stuff? <laughs> I, no, I, I mean, that, I don't mean that. Uh, well, maybe I do mean it that way, kind of a little bit. I mean, what does a flexible culture mean? Well, that's where we we I mean, finally honest started to, God, to wrestle with that. But what, is, what does that mean? I Both wanna, terms are kind of beyond description. I want to I kind of recognize what Reason did for us. Yeah, now, fair enough. Right? So what Reason did was he set the stage for a discussion, for a future dialogue. And I think the Forest Service did a really good job with this because what we did was we saw the Reason piece, which was from his perspective, and not wholly inaccurate, right? Not wholly inaccurate, I should say. What, what Reason did was he set the stage for a deeper dialogue around those things. The deeper dialogue involves interdisciplinary research. We now have to bring people in like Edgar Schein. We have to bring people in like Edgar Morin. We have to bring people in like Kenneth Gergen. I was hoping you'd say Edgar Meyer. He's Edgar a really Meyer? famous bass player. Just, oh, I thought yeah. it fit perfectly. We should bring him in too. <laughs> uh, we had to bring, bring folks in like this Amy Edmondson's work. And this interdisciplinary approach set the stage for us to begin to reflect, not necessarily challenge, but reflect on what reason said to begin with. What we ended up with after, after really looking back at this was a redefinition of, of reason's uh, constructs. So reason didn't have terrible constructs, but where he started was an informed culture, a, support, a reporting culture, a just culture, a learning culture, and a flexible culture. What we recognized was his definitions were okay, 
but they weren't enough. And they didn't embrace that interdisciplinary approach. So we looked at flexible culture. And this is what emerged out of, out of really not just, out of, of really just doing it, right? What emerged was a flexible culture is a culture in which an organization shifts cultural interventions based on the work environment and or the predictability and uncertainty inherent in the system. So flexibility isn't about uh, something that we think about esoterically, as you mentioned. Instead, it's really looking at how the system is delivering and how we react to the system delivery. If the system is predictable, that's important to recognize. And we should intervene with things that fit that. But if the system is uncertain, if there's uncertainty built into it, it requires a different set of interventions. And I'm going to end, end with that. Uh, that's but the- I think you're smart. I, so I will tell you that my bias is, uh, and it's that I come by it pretty honestly, if you look at sort of the the academic work around culture, the culture is really not something you create. Culture is a result. It's, it's an outcome. And so you think about the journey the Forest Service leadership took. Mm-hmm. So as they went from coercive to, to listening, right, or coercive to safe, if we sort of went through all four, my guess is as the leadership changed, the culture changed. Now, here's the question. It's a little chicken and eggy, so be ready. Did the leadership's behavior change the culture, or did the culture change the leadership's behavior? And this is a question I get asked a lot. I don't think this can happen without leadership support, but I don't think it can happen without both of those things happening simultaneously. So the field has to be in a position of inquiry and learning, and leadership has to be in a position of inquiry and learning. And I think it's contingent upon how we look at the field, right? I mean, if leadership sees the field as the problem, sort of a traditional view, safety one view, if we can sure. sort of tap into Hall Nagel, then we'll always have better advice coming from management to workers. Yes. But if you take more of a safety two view, not again to Hall Nagel, then all of a sudden the data you want to collect existed in your organization all the time. It's just a matter of creating sort of humble inquiry, uh, Edgar right Schein's shine. sort of notion, right? And psych- psychological safety, Amy Edmondson's notion, yeah. to actually tap in and get that information. It's it's worthwhile for sure to think about. Yeah, and so where you are is in, in exactly what we discovered rather painfully was that an interdisciplinary approach is required. And David Woods factors into this, and certainly Sidney Decker factors into this. There are a lot of different professionals who have spent a lot of time looking at different aspects of this that we knit knit together. In fact, that's kind of the interesting thing about the origins of the word complexity. Complexity comes from complex R, which is to knit together. And that became a really important thing for innovation or our group, IOL, innovation and organizational learning to knit these different things together. For example, you just led into a really important piece of it, which is the learning culture, how we redefined learning culture. Was learning as a shared value within the organization and is defined by the needs of the learners, which is something we never thought about before. And learners are encouraged to ask questions and rewarded for humble inquiry, so genuine inquiry. Following an adverse outcome event, all members of the organization are accountable to learn. And that's actually a quote from the then chief of the Forest Service who said, When we have an adverse outcome event, our accountability shifts to the accountability to learn everything we can from that event, which is huge. That's a big shift in in leadership thinking. 
Reporting culture, an organizational climate in which people are prepared to discuss errors and are willing to share perspectives. It's a function of psychological safety, but it's also a function of relational leadership. And we forget that, that those two things are really closely tied together. I mean, I can remember being in the Forest Service and, and actually being on the floor with, the, with the, the regional forester and for being there for three years and never seeing the regional forester. Never saw him. But when I was in the Coast Guard, I'd see the commanding officer of the unit every single day. What kind of relationship could I develop with leadership when I saw the leader every day versus a leader that I never saw? Or one that showed up for a safety meeting and said, safety's our number one priority, and now my staff and I are going to walk up to our offices and do the important work while you guys sit here and talk about safety. That actually happened. So a shift in that kind of thinking has to take place. And it did. I think the Forest Service, I, I take my hat off to Forest Service leadership for making that shift happen. An informed culture. Those who manage and operate the system share understanding and knowledge openly throughout the system. And all members of the organization are recognized as learners. So this is kind of how we redefined Reason's initial roadmap. And I think it was pretty important to do that. I think it was a pretty important thing. But now the piece de la résistance. Here it comes. Here it comes. The apex. The apex. The climax. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. As we look at the climax or the apex of this, what we started to recognize was that we had a cultural intervention spectrum. And this becomes really interesting because it wasn't until I was actually forced to take a look at what we'd done and write this paper that I began to understand that we literally had a spectrum of interventions that applied. We would, you know, you could argue that that Punitive action doesn't work. You could argue that punitive action does work. You could spend all of your time around those different types of interventions without ever realizing that the application is specific to the system properties. So we started mapping, and I've got a couple of students that are doing this right now as, as their capstone projects. They're actually mapping their organization, looking at their work functions against the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, we have highly predictable on the other end of the spectrum, we have highly uncertain. So if the system delivers uncertainty, we have a different set of interventions. Right. If the system has a high degree of predictability, there's yet a different set of interventions. And there are also interventions that are shared unilaterally between both systems. So let's talk about the, the ones, the, the simple and complicated, the, where the, there's high levels of predictability in the system. The interventions on that side Compliance with routine. We want compliance because the system is consistently delivering the expected. We want the creation of knowledge. So we want to understand the system in an analytical sense. So knowledge about the system. We want defenses in depth. There's absolutely no question about that. In that system, that side of the spectrum, we want defenses in depth. And we want traditional risk management and hazard identification. That works really well as interventions on that side of the cultural spectrum. But if we move to the uncertain side, the complex side, our demands are different and our interventions are different. The interventions on the complex side, on the highly uncertain side, are sense-making and innovation. We want to build the capacity of the field personnel to make sense of conflicting information and develop information or innovations. 
We want the creation of understanding. So we want to understand how the system is functioning. It's different than knowledge, which is more technical. This is an understanding of system complexity and system interaction. We want to increase the capacity of the workforce to recognize anomaly. Now I'm going to give you a, a silly story. In the Air Force, when I was briefing my, my crews, I adopted something that, that was widespread throughout the aviation community in the Middle East, and that was anytime you see something that's dumb, dangerous, or different, let us know. I don't care what's happening on the flight deck. Interrupt us and let us know if it's dumb, dangerous, or different. Now, I didn't understand how deep this the capacity of that little saying was. <laughs> it's great, though, right? I gave a talk in uh, in New Zealand to the forestry community in New Zealand. And the forestry and community, community in New Zealand adopted that to such a high degree that they actually wrote dumb, dangerous, and different on the back of their high-vis vests so that everybody on site, on That's the operational brilliant. site, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, and, and that would trigger that response. Because we always say if you see something and say something, right? But there's all kinds of baggage associated with that. In this case, they had dumb, dangerous, and different, speak up, and it worked. And it's working for them right now. And the last thing about that complex side is we have to recognize that we're in a realm of experimentation. We're not in, an ex in a realm of problem solving. We're literally, we're literally experimenting with the system to see what works. So failure is important. We learn as much from failure as we do from success in that experimental mode. And if we can recognize that and embrace that, all of a sudden that whole idea and concept of error kind of fades off into the distance because error is part of learning. Yeah, rather unimportant. Yeah, I agree with you. Nice. And then the last piece is the universal uh, interventions. So if you look at, at the entire system, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, there are still some universal things like relational leadership. That's hugely important. The sense of vulnerability, bringing that sense of vulnerability or humility to the work, workplace. Cognitive diversity, hugely important. And the importance of learning. So the unifying thing that IOL brought to the Forest Service was not safety culture, but learning culture. It was something that we could unilaterally define, that we could unilaterally see value in. Everybody sees value in learning. So the learning culture piece was a, was a central unifying force. And finally, psychological safety and building in that time to reflect, allowing us to reflect. That's what I've got. I told you it was a really good podcast. I'm not, see, I'm not lying to you and stuff. So that's Ivan Papaliti. If you want more, Dynamic Inquiry LLC is the website. And uh, you can always catch Ivan through LinkedIn or just drop a note. I mean, it's a, it's quite doable. And uh, he's someone to talk to. And I, he's really, he's doing some cool stuff and some definitely cool things um, as he retires. So that's been kind of fun. So that's the podcast already over time a little bit. But that's okay. I owe, I owe you. I'll, I'll make it up to you. I promise. It's a deal. I hope you uh, learned something new today. I'm sure I did. I know I did. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Thanks, Ivan and Chris, for being on the podcast. And for the rest of you guys, for goodness sakes, be safe. <laughs>